right, well, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 18, is where we're going to be today, and starting in, in verse uh, 23. The title of my message is, is The Other Shoe, and I've brought some shoes with me today. Uh, one of these up here is mine, and I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, the others are not. But this is a picture of my family, and, and most of you probably know them, Brianna and our four kids. And I think I've said before, uh, when you become a parent, you find yourself s saying things that you never thought you'd say. Uh, and oftentimes it's stuff that your parents said that you never thought you'd say. And I've said it before that one of the most common phrases that I've found myself saying, and if I'm really honest, yelling repeatedly, is, is this phrase, and it often comes after our two-and-a-half-minute drive from our house to the church, and the phrase is this, where are your shoes, <laughs> right? Because I don't know if this has happened to you, if it's just me, uh, something happens in that two-and-a-half minutes, and shoes are raptured, um, and, and it's not to heaven. It's to the back of the van or under a McDonald's box or wrappers or what. And so we, we get there like, where, where is your shoes? We just, like it takes a while to get four little kids to even get their shoes on and to get them on the right feet and to get them tied and to get them with two of the same kind of shoe. And then in two minutes, in the span of two minutes, they've somehow disappeared and lost, lost at least one of, of their shoes. And, and most of us, we think of shoes, especially in like a business context or a corporate context, or if you're going to go for a hike, we think of them as fairly essential to the process. Like, like if Pastor Rod came one day, and he's a very well-prepared guy, and he got up here, and you noticed, and you told yourself, like, does he only have one shoe on? And it, like if the sock was kind of pulled off, like Rip Van Winkle style, and he only had one shoe on, or if my wife Brianna was up singing and she was wearing this shoe to shame me for my shortness. And, and you noticed, <laughs> and you noticed, wait a minute, she's only got one, like what's, where's the other shoe? I mean, we, we normally think of shoes in general, but especially if you're going to put at least one on, we think of them as fairly essential. And yet with kids, the essential can become the absent. And that's actually what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the essential and the absent. And we'll throw that up on the screen here, the essential and the absent. One of the things that happens is that when something is absent from your life, even if it's essential, one of the things that I've realized or sort of found is that the longer it's absent, the more likely you are to forget that it's even absent. Like the longer something is absent, the more it's missing, the less you miss it. And then the essential quickly becomes not just the absent, but the almost sort of invariably or continually absent. And it's, ch it's true not just with like children's footwear, but it's true in the life of the church. That in some cases, that which is essential for the church to be the church can become absent in many cases. And the longer it's missing, the less we notice that it's missing. And I want to talk about that today out of Acts chapter 18. What is it? What's the essential that sometimes becomes the absent? It says this in Acts 18, beginning in verse 23. The words will be up on the screen, or you can read them in your Bibles with me. 
After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew, and this is the crucial phrase, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home, and it says they explained to him the way of God more adequately. This is a passage about one of the greatest preachers, if not the greatest preacher in the first century church. And it's a guy by the name of Apollos. Apollos. And, and if, if you were going to hire a pastor in the first century and you collected resumes from sort of all over the Mediterranean world and this resume came across your desk, the resume of Apollos, you would probably want to hire this guy. Uh, Apollos had a lot of things going for, them, going for him. And if you wanted to just list off quickly some of the things that he had going for him, these might be seven. These might be seven reasons to sort of accept his resume and call him back and bring him in and interview him to be your pastor. Uh, the first thing is just simply, he's a Jew. And that might sound like, well, that's just, you know, that's just his ethnicity or his race. But the reality is because he's a Jew, he is intimately acquainted with the culture and the customs of Jesus. It's not a foreign language, not a foreign country to him, the culture and the customs of Jesus, but he's not only a Jew. Secondly, it says he's a Jew from Alexandria, down in Egypt. And one of the things we know about the ancient world is that the city of Alexandria was the most cosmopolitan, was the most learned, the most philosophical place that you could be from. It had the world's greatest library until it was sort of tragically burnt down uh, Julius Caesar, you can blame him. Uh, it had all of the great learning and philosophy. It made Rome look like a cow town, supposedly, in the time of Cleopatra. Alexandria was this incredible center of learning in the pagan Gentile world. And so he's not only got the Jewish pedigree, but he's got the Alexandrian pedigree. He's got a foot in both world, it's, worlds. It says he was learned. He'd been to school. He was, he was well-educated, and not just in the ways of the world, but fourthly, it says he has a thorough knowledge of the Scripture. He had a theological education. He, he knew the Bible. He knew the Word of God. He was instructed, fifthly, in the way of the Lord. He didn't just have like an Old Testament faith. He knew the way of the Lord Jesus. He had been instructed about Jesus Christ. Sixthly, he spoke, they said, with great fervor. If he was in our day, we would say he was very good with a face mic. He was engaging. He was funny. He was a brilliant rhetorician. People heard the Apostle Paul speak, and sometimes they said, apparently, according to Paul himself, that in his letters, he's weighty, but in person, he's eh, unimpressive. Nobody said that about Apollos. People said, when you see him speak, when you hear him speak, he speaks with, with fervor, with skill, with passion. And then seventh, maybe most important of all, 
he got Jesus right. It says he's taught accurately. He taught about Jesus accurately. And you think, well, what in the world else is there? I mean, if you're collecting resumes, Apollos like rises to this, the very top of the stack. And there's just this one, this one little gap in his, in his understanding and in his faith. And it's this very short phrase. It says, he knew only the baptism of John. He knew only the baptism of John. And and then this same phrase appears the very next chapter in Acts chapter 19. Paul ends up in Ephesus and he meets some people there and he talks to them and he says, have you heard about the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And they say, we've only heard of the baptism of John. And if you were going to sort of break it down, the, the baptism of John is essential. It's crucial. It's a baptism we learn in the Bible, a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism where you say, I, I have fallen short. I need grace. I need God to save me. And you are baptized in repentance. It's the baptism of John. It is absolutely essential. But the reality is, if the baptism of John is, so to speak, one shoe by which we sort of walk through the Christian life, there's another one. There's another one. And in this passage, we see it's the baptism. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is essential to the Christian life. And I wonder, to be honest, and this this may sound sort of harsh, I wonder how many Christians, how many churches, in so many instances, the, the same thing could be said of us or of them as was said of Apollos. And they had great classes. They had discipleship stuff. They taught about Jesus accurately. They stressed repentance, yada, yada, yada. But then at the end of all that stuff, it, they only knew the baptism of John. How many people could that be said of? That the essential had become the absent when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And so my big idea today is, is very simple. There's only one key idea that I, that I want to stress in different ways, and it's this. That the living, active presence of the Holy Spirit is what makes the church the church. The living, powerful, active, mysterious work of the Spirit makes the church the church. It is essential. It's the other shoe, so to speak, in the life of transformation or of discipleship. And if we're not careful, the essential, in some cases, can become the absent. This is a message about the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes... The Spirit, one of the ancient Christian creeds, is called the Lord and the giver of life. And the Spirit does that. The the text says that it's the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the Spirit of God that we sang this morning that calls us to cry out, Abba, Father, I am a child of God, right? It's the Spirit that gives life. 
But sometimes what happens, because all of us are busy and all of us sort of stress other things, is that that can sort of be papered over with other things. And sometimes you've seen this maybe on athletic fields. What they'll often do, especially if you've got Bermuda grass, and Bermuda grass turns brown very quickly, is that they, they'll sort of paint it. Have you ever seen this? Sort of paint it, a bright green, because, you know, that's happier and nicer. And, and then I've, I've even seen in some cases where the rains come and then the, the green paint just sort of runs everywhere, like, like mascara on Christian cable. Um, and and it, it has the illusion of life and vitality, but it's just been sort of painted over the brown deadness. And with the absence of the Holy Spirit, that is the church. That is us. There's this sort of veneer of life, but the Lord and giver of life has left the building. One person said that religion is what is left when the Spirit leaves the building. We need the Spirit. And so the first thing I want to look at today is why we resist. Why would any of us resist the Lord and giver of life? Why would we resist the Holy Spirit. And some would say, well, is that even possible? Can you even resist the Holy Spirit? Uh, the book of Acts says we can. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving his famous sermon right before they kill him. And one of the things he says is, you're just like your fathers. That always gets people, right? <laughs> you're just like your dad. You're just like your fathers, he says. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So, so apparently it's possible but, but why do we do it? First reason, one word, ignorance. Ignorance. This is the most innocent and understandable reason. It's the reason why Apollos is not acquainted with the Holy Spirit. It's through no fault of his own. It's just, just you've heard this phrase before. You, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Nobody's introduced him to the Holy Spirit. And that's the problem in Acts chapter 19, the, the people of Ephesus. They, 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 they use this, this wonderful phrase. I'll throw it up on the screen. They say, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Right? They use the indefinite article, the, the A, right? It shows like, what are you talking about? There's a Holy Spirit, right? And so one of the reasons we resist through no fault of our own is we just haven't been introduced to this person of the Trinity, and so rather than be rebuked or made to feel guilty, we simply need to be introduced. One of my favorite phrases as a teacher to hear in class is when a student says, this might be a stupid question, but, and I know before they ever say it that it's not a stupid question because it's an honest one that they've had the courage to share and that probably it's going to be the best question asked all day. It's not a churchy question. It's not a question that's made, you know, to, to, to be heard by others. It's, it's this, I, I want to know. Can you, can you introduce me to something? Can you teach me? And so the first reason we resist is, is just innocent ignorance. And it speaks to the importance of discipleship. Apollos needs somebody to disciple him. Despite all of his gifts, he needs a mentor. And this, this woman and this man, this husband and this wife, Priscilla and Aquila, become 
disciple makers of this guy, to be honest, who is far more gifted than them probably. Even incredibly gifted people need others to come alongside them and disciple them. And that's what, that's what happens here. Ignorance is a reason. Uh, sort of a sidebar here. One of the more frustrating things, one of the things that sometimes makes me upset within the church, within Christendom, within Christianity, is when people get mad at the world for being worldly. When people get angry at Christians for not acting Christianly, as if we could expect anything else, right? I'll be the first to admit, if, if Jesus hadn't hijacked my life, I would be doing different things, saying different things. I needed to be introduced to this person. And many, many of us, we need, we need that with regard to the Spirit. We resist out of ignorance. Secondly, secondly, sort of on the scale from completely innocent to somewhat innocent, but, but not entirely, some of us resist the Spirit's work out of fear. We resist the work of the Spirit because we're, we're afraid. And, and sometimes the reality is we're afraid because we've, we've seen some weirdness in the Christian subculture. And the, the sense is, if we emphasize the Holy Spirit, that weirdness is going to invade. And before you know it, all sorts of craziness is going to go down. We've seen some things that we're like, oh my goodness, I hope that doesn't happen, right? And we end up being afraid of the third member of the Trinity, which is a terrible thing to be afraid of, to be afraid of God. And in some cases that leads us, you've heard this phrase before, it leads us to replace Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a different Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Because that seems safer. And I'm, I'm a Bible teacher. That's what I do. I love the Bible. I believe the Bible. I think it's inspired. I think it's trustworthy. But I don't worship a book. That's silly. We worship God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so sometimes when we see weirdness surrounding the Spirit, whether it's on Christian cable or somewhere else, this sort of what you might call charismania, this sort of twisting of the Spirit, produces what, what we've sometimes called charisphobia, where we're afraid to yield to the Spirit out of this sort of concern that, that things might get weird. And what's interesting in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to say that, that far from being the source of weirdness, the Spirit in our worship is the source of order, the source of well-ordered, well-directed worship. And so we need not be afraid of of God. We, I planted a church one time in Grand Rapids, and it was a culture, very, very Christian culture, very, very Bible, Bible culture, and the one thing they were afraid of when we planted this church, we met in a school gymnasium, and they had one question. The question was, do you guys handle snakes? <laughs> and there was that fear, right, that that, that might be going on. That's, that's not what we're going to do today, so don't worry. If you're afraid, that's not, I haven't brought that prop yet. Number three, why do we resist? Out of ignorance, out of fear. And this one for me is the most penetrating, the most painful. We just want control. How many of you are a control freak, if you just be honest? Yeah. I like control. I like being in control of my classroom, 
of my kids. And sometimes the gift of God into my life is to remind me that in so many cases, I don't control squat. There's this beautiful phrase in Acts 15 where they say, it seemed good to the Spirit and also to us. It's as if in their decision-making process, they've yielded some amount of control to the Spirit. But if I'm just honest about myself, my own personality, I would often like to amend and to shorten this Bible verse from it seems good to the Spirit and to us to, to something more like it seemed good to us. Or if I'm more honest, it seemed good to me. And we leave out the spirit because we don't want to relinquish control. C.S. Lewis, my favorite Lewis book, you've probably heard me quote it before, is a book called Till We Have Faces. And it's this myth retold, this ancient pagan myth retold. And he's doing it to sort of make some points about the true God and the true gospel and I've got a picture of it we'll throw up on the screen here. And there's this quote. There's this quote in the, in the book. We'll go to the next slide there. Yeah. The main character, the protagonist, who so badly wants control of her life and the people around her, she says this. She says, you, God, are a tree in whose shadow we cannot thrive. And then here's the reason, she says. We want to be our own. And I thought, man, how many times is that me? I want to be in charge of everything. I want to be my own. And so I resist, I resist God. I resist the spirit because I want control. Three reasons why we resist. Ignorance, fear, control. But the thing I want to look at next is what do we lose? What do we lose when we resist the person of the Spirit, when we walk around with sort of one shoe on, so to speak, when the essential becomes the absent. And, and I could mention several things that, that Rod's going to speak about next week, and so I'm going to sort of bracket some of the supernatural and the miraculous and things like that that are absolutely part of the Spirit's work in our lives, but I'm going to let Rod talk about that next week. The first thing I want to mention is this. When we resist the Spirit, one of the things we lose is the beauty of diversity, the beauty of diversity in Christ's family, in Christ's body, in the church, in community. And one of the things that's been striking to me as I study church history, it's fascinating that the charismatic movement starting in 1906 in Azusa Street, in many cases, has been the most racially diverse segment of the church, right? And I've sort of envied that, being from a different tradition. Like, how come, how come the charismatics are just more diverse than me? Or, and the, the tradition I came out of, or this tradition, or that one, right? And there are lots of reasons. It's a complicated issue, right? But I have to think that one of the reasons is, in the Bible itself, one of the gifts that the Spirit brings, when the Spirit invades, when the Spirit falls or moves, is that people who don't look like they belong together in the eyes of the world find themselves as family. And that you look around the room and one of the ways you know that God is at work is because you couldn't sort of account for this diversity or this difference any other way. The Spirit is the bringer of the beauty of diversity. 
And there's this, there's this reality in the book of Acts. It's when the Spirit comes that Gentiles are welcomed into the people of God as Gentiles. They don't have to become Jewish first. And the Spirit is the bringer of oneness. But the Spirit is not the bringer of sameness. There's a difference. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. The Spirit is the bringer of the beauty of diversity. We see this in the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts that are given by the Spirit are each one different and diverse. Some are called to be prophets, teachers, evangelists. Some are given the gift of hospitality and helps. And each one of these gifts of the Spirit is different. And yet the purpose is to build us together into this unique, diverse people of God. There's an arc in the Bible between Genesis chapter 11, something called the Tower of Babel, and Acts chapter 2. And at the Tower of Babel, what happens is in our pride and our sin, humanity builds this tower. It's a sort of silly story, you think about it. Like we're going to build a tower to heaven, right? And God judges our hubris and our pride. And part of the judgment is the confusion of our languages. And we're scattered, it says, across the face of the earth. We don't communicate with understanding. The languages are confused and people are scattered. That's Genesis chapter 11. If you move to Acts chapter 2, you have the sort of antithesis or the redemption of Babel. Because here again, you have all these different people speaking different languages. But when the Spirit comes, there's understanding. It's not just a return to we all have the same language now. But what it is is a redemption of that diversity. We have different languages, different cultures, different customs. But in Acts chapter 2, there's community in the midst of that, that beautiful diversity of languages and cultures and customs and races and tribes and creeds all coming together. One of my favorite U2 songs, I'm going to try not to sing it because I realize that would be self-indulgent. Um, one of my favorite U2 songs, Bono, he sings this line out. He says, I believe when kingdom comes, all the colors will bleed into one. Bleed into one. And I love that song. I'm not going to sing it. The only problem is it's, it's not exactly biblical. <laughs> because in the Bible, it's not all bleeding into one. It's one bleeding into all. That the blood of Jesus doesn't expunge the diverse colors. It brightens them like a renovated painting. And so it's not that all are washed out into this pale, homogenous, monotone gray Right, like that Bermuda grass after the rains come. It's that those colors are brightened and the spirit is the bringer of the beauty of that diversity. We, we miss that when we resist the spirit. Secondly, what we lose. We lose what, what's been called in church history the link of love. The link of love. The early church father, Augustine, he called the Spirit the vinculum caritatis, right? That's Latin. I'm not speaking in tongues. 
um, the vinculum caritatis, the link of love. And, and he argued that the Spirit is what binds the Father and the Son together in unity, just like the Spirit is what binds you and I together in unity, despite the fact that we are particular persons, that we are unique and distinct. And it's this, this uniting force. It's a gospel-driven unity. And what sometimes happens when the Spirit is absent, when the Spirit, the link of love, is not the thing that binds us together in unity, what you'll see within the world and sometimes even within the church, it's easier to form a unity with something other than love. And oftentimes what that is is a common enemy. And so we're united not by love, we're united by what we hate, what we don't like. And while that can bind people together out in the world or sometimes even the church, the better form of unity is what Augustine calls the link of love, the spirit that unites us together. Without that, we've talked previously how the church, without the spirit, this bond of love, we very quickly become clanging gongs and crashing cymbals rather than this healing presence within the world. Third and final thing. I know I'm short on, on time. What we lose without the Spirit is what one theologian, Anthony Thistleton, he calls the Holy Spirit the beyond within us. The beyond within. The Holy Spirit is God just as much as the Father or the Son he is transcendent. He is beyond us. But he is the one member of the Trinity that is also within us. And because he's within us, he empowers us to live differently. He empowers us to, to change. Not because we're great or we have all this innate potential or anything like that. But because he's the beyond within. One author, uh, Francis Chan, writes a book called The Forgotten God about the Holy Spirit. And he talks about if you were to say, if you were a basketball player and you were to argue that the spirit of Michael Jordan had inhabited your body, you would think that that would cause you to actually be a better basketball player. Like if the spirit of Jordan lived in you in some real way, like your shooting percentage would go up, right? My vertical would certainly go up, right? And yet that's what we argue as Christians, that the Spirit lives in us. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't mean that we don't fall short. It doesn't, know, doesn't mean that we don't need grace. But it does mean that we're empowered to live differently because the Spirit is the beyond within. The Spirit is the source of holiness. The Spirit is the source of prayer. The source of holiness and the source of prayer. We sang that, that song this, this morning, crying out to God as as father, right? We sang that line, I am a child of God. And in Romans chapter 8, the reason that we cry out, Abba, Father, Paul explicitly says, is that the Spirit lives within us. And even when we don't know what to pray or what to say, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. I've often said before when we've talked about prayer that you have never once prayed alone. 
that in your most faltering, confused, stammering, forgetful, distracted prayer, there is one interceding for you and within you and taking up those feeble, faltering sentences before the throne of God and presenting them perfect and whole. The Spirit does that. The Spirit is essential for the life of faith. And yet if we're, if we're not careful, the essential can become the absent. And so what I want to do today in closing, um, it may seem anticlimactic. I want to pray. It's really creative, right? I want to pray that whatever kind of week you've had, wherever you find yourself in the walk of faith, that the Spirit of God would inhabit your life in a more pronounced way. That you would experience the presence of God, the power of God, the beyond within, the beauty of diversity as the Spirit comes and fills this place just as the Spirit did in Acts chapter 2. Let's pray. God, we confess that in so many cases, the essential becomes the absent in our lives. And whether that essential is community, whether that essential is discipleship or repentance or gratitude, the essential becomes the absent. And Lord, I confess that in some cases, a sort of dependence on the Holy Spirit becomes absent within my life and within the lives of Christians everywhere. And so, Lord, I pray that Grace Community Church, that it would not be spoken of us like it was spoken of Apollos, that we did all of these great things, but that we knew only the baptism of John. I pray that this place would be known as a place where we are led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, so that we might not walk through life, so to speak, with one shoe off. We want to be transformed. And so we ask, we ask you, Lord, to do that. We praise as the early church, the Vini Creator Spiritus, come Creator Spirit, work in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and we trust and we celebrate. Amen.